Welcome back, Housing News listeners. This is Alstana Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. Today, you'll be listening to Episode 8 of Season 3, which features AMC Lending Group's Senior Loan Manager, Logan Matashami. In this episode, the Housing Wire columnist and housing data analyst dives deeper into his recent article, The Housing Industry Isn't As Doomed As It May Seem. The article discusses the housing market's potential rebound following the COVID-19 pandemic. Notably, he also shares his perspective on what he thinks will be the biggest issues facing the housing industry in the virus's wake. According to him, the housing industry needs to prepare for an uptick in home foreclosures and rapid home price growth due to a lack of housing inventory. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. This episode of Housing News is sponsored by RHMI's RateStar buy-down tool. Save your borrowers money when you use the industry's only MI buy-down tool to create a custom MI payment the competition can't match. Only from RHMI. Learn more at archmi.com slash RateStar buy-down. Thank you for listening. And here's episode eight of the Housing News Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Clayton Collins, President and CEO of Housing Wire. We're back for another episode of the Housing News Podcast. This time we are with a Housing Wire columnist and housing data analyst, uh, Logan Motoshami. Logan, very welcome to Housing News. Hey, it's great to be here. <laughs> well, Logan, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over the last few months after following you and your insights for the last few years. But to many of the Housing Wire audience members and folks that listen to Housing News, you are a, a new face and a new voice. So we would love to learn more about you and how you got started in the housing industry and how you got interested in housing data. Can you, how, how'd you get started? What are the origins of Logan? Well, first, our, our family has been in banking since the late 1950s. You know, uh, so I'm basically the third generation in line. Uh, my grandfather, my father, and, and me. Uh, my we had opened our own uh, mortgage company here in uh, Southern California in 1987. So uh, we've been doing mortgage lending as a family uh, for for many, many, many years. And I've always been an avid stock market trader and uh, follower of the economy in general. And after the housing bubble crash, oddly enough. Um, when I remember the home buying tax credit that the NAR was pushing in 2010, and they were saying that this was really going to be good for housing, and I thought, you know, I, I'm not sure something's not going to work out here. I'm going to I'm going to talk about housing just from my perspective, and in, so in 2010 uh, I started my own blog, uh, and and then it just basically evolved into becoming an analyst, going to conferences, speaking about housing and economics. I had no intention of doing any of this at all whatsoever uh, back in 2010. You know, Benzinga first asked me to write for them, uh, uh, oddly enough, back then. And now it's evolved into just almost daily tracking of all economic data with a very tilt to housing. And it just, every single year, it just becomes sharper and, and, and more data-oriented. So it's been an it's been an interesting collage of how it's evolved itself to now you know writing for Housing Wire uh, uh, as as a columnist and I think it's just something that I really enjoy doing obviously and uh, uh, it's just a lot of fun for me because it just works with my mind perfectly so that's why I'm 24 seven charts all the time and it's not just only housing data I think if you really want to follow housing economics you you have to have your feet into everything. 
and tracking all economic data started really in 2015, 2016, when I started to do it more on, on an aggressive basis. So that's kind of where I'm from. I was, you know, just an LO and then now just a financial blogger to now basically I get to talk to the financial media and conferences about housing economics, which has, I have a different take, of course, than a lot of people in housing. So I think it just, it's a more unique, uh, individual uh, look at the housing economy and where we're at right now. So like many of us, you grew up around the industry, had a, had a passion for, for housing, and in 2010 said, hey, I'm going to take this view and this passion and start quantifying it and, and really paying attention to the data inputs that are influencing housing prices, starts, um, origination volume, and everything else that kind of impacts the health of the, the overall market. Yes, yes, and it just kind of took a life of its own, you know, and now, you know, I, I'm here, you know, a lot, a lot of things I do, the Bloomberg Financial Housing Preview every year now uh, at the end of the year, so it's just, it, it's ongoing, it's still growing, you know, there, there's so much more things to explore, uh, and, and it's it's just a lot of fun for me, and it just takes a lot of time in the day, but I, it doesn't bother me at all. So if we you know, were, I get up at four. I get up at four in the morning. I go to bed at ten at night. It's day in and day out, twenty four seven, and it just fits my personality. So if we were to pull back the curtain on what your your analysis and, and data insight looks like in the housing economy, what what do you what's are you running a, a model of of like the overall health of the economy? Um, what inputs are you looking at every day or every week? Like what, what's well, most important? Housing housing economics is primarily driven by demographics and where mortgage rates are. You know, uh, the secondary fix are the, the U.S. economy itself, you know, how, you know, uh, recessions, expansions, where inflation is. But housing is primarily driven by demographics and mortgage rates. And one of the things uh, that early on, a lot of people that follow my work over the years, I, I always said this housing cycle in the previous expansion was going to be the weakest housing cycle ever recorded in history. And it was primarily based on housing starts and new home sales, because I don't think mortgage demand was ever going to be uh, uh, up to where maybe the economists thought housing starts were going to be. And there's where the divide comes in. I think that's where my work might have been a little bit popular in the sense that it provided just a different take. New home sales fell 82% from the housing bubble crash, and then we basically started this very slow and steady process. But years 2020 to 2024, that's what I've always written about for, for, for many years, this is where housing demographics really kick in. And because we had the best loan profile in this cycle, you really have the ability to, for housing to potentially accelerate at this time because you have the demographics, you have first-time homeowners in better shape, and then this virus came. So it's, you know, you got to be prepared to deal with any kind of exogenous event. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's going to be really interesting to see what does a global pandemic virus do for housing because, in theory, it will keep uh, – it's a deflationary event. It will keep mortgage rates low. But obviously, when you have 22 million-plus unemployed people, there will be an impact. So the, the way to do this is to look at all the different variables within each cycle. But always remember, economics is demographics. It's productivity. The rest is stamp collecting. So you've got to follow uh, where demographic profiles are, especially in the housing market. So, Logan, I think that that hit at the this wave of demographic wave of 2020 to 2024 of it being this really exciting time for housing bridges us really well to an article that you wrote for Housing Wire last week titled Housing is not as doomed as it may seem. And you go into some of the, the background about the, the pro the, the positives and the negatives that are impacting the, the housing economy. But ultimately, you talk about the why behind housing is not as doomed. 
So I could take the other side of that and say, hey, we were going to this pandemic couldn't have hit at a worse time in, in history. We had this amazing wave that was just getting ready to start and here. Pound. It's, it's not going to it's not going to happen. So so what's what's your perspective there? Tell us a little more about the background of how this article came together and the data you were looking at to form this thesis. We have a group of people, which I call the great American bears of our lifetime. These are mostly kind of gold bugs and anti-central bank people. Everything is a crash to them. So a lot of this is to counteract the uh, yellow journalism that has been, uh, you know, uh, uh, sensationalized in the in, in, in the U.S., and what this is, is it's this time is a little bit different than what it was in 2008. 2008, you know, 2007 and 8, prime age labor force growth peaked and was declining a little bit. So the economy, even without a housing bubble, would have been weaker. Uh, but after you have a credit bubble and a deleveraging and a, and a process to get here, you have a massive amount of just raw people, ages 26 to 32, which is the biggest demographic patch ever recorded in U.S. history, going into their first-time home buying age, the median age is 33. That in itself is the most dynamic and powerful economic force in history right there. You just have a lot of people that need shelter. So then you can, you go to the secondary effect is mortgage rates. Now, for me, the housing market gets softer when the 10-year yield is above 2.62%, which means 45 to 5% mortgage rates, even though historically it's low, it softens the market up. But that's not the case right here. So you have two prime factors that are really bullish for housing. Then you have this virus, which if you looked at it, 22 million people are unemployed. There's no way that could be beneficial for housing. But that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is that, that we're shut down in our economy. That The strength of the U.S. economy has always been that it had a lot of people working, a lot of people consuming goods and services. That was taken away for this virus. So I always stress to people, do not look at housing data uh, uh, while we are in lockdowns. You're not going to get a very good uh, a medium or long-term take on it. Wait till lockdown protocols are taken off and then judge it. Because right now, theoretically, people are saying, well, inventory is going to explode higher. Home prices are going to collapse 30, 40, 50, 60%. The bubble's over. We, we see delistings every week. It's not like it was in the housing bubble years. And, and that's the problem the the, the marketing of the housing bubble has become beneficiary for a lot of people, especially YouTube sites and, and, and websites. But there's not enough uh, uh, internal work done to, to expose the fraud that it's very hard to have a bubble in the same sector back to back historically. So housing demographics is really good right now. You just got to get the economy open again and let it go to work. Let's not let's not fly by that delistings comment. So uh, in in March, I believe that new listings were up five percent year over year, and I think we're down. We saw um, listings fall off about forty five percent. Is that correct? In in April? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and every 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 housing group has their own numbers, but it's the same. Just because this is different than the housing bubble. Housing bubble inventory was rising in two thousand six, and then you had the recession and then the collapse, all that. Here you have people. Hey, I'm not selling. I'm not selling until lockdowns are over. I have that ability. And part of this is this huge phenomenon of housing tenure doubling. That is a huge macroeconomic story for the housing market. From 1985 to 2007, people stood in their hair for five years. Now that's up to 10 years. People don't need to move as much. So the velocity of inventory, right, it's going to be limited. So this is one of the reasons why you're seeing listings down because people go, hey, listen, I don't really need to sell. And I'm not going to sell for a price that I don't think my home's worth. That is the that is the um, 
individual strength that the housing market has where in the previous cycle inventory had to fly because you know the rate the loan quality wasn't good the demographics wasn't good then we had a job loss recession then credit froze this is a little bit different so we have to take a more sophisticated approach in regards to talking about housing economics because we can't just simply go everything's a bubble everything's going to crash that hasn't worked for the last seven years a lot of these kind of radical economic theories about the housing market have failed. No, the affordability crisis never happened. Demand has still been rising. Inventories are stable. Home prices are still rising. The student loan debt crisis happened in the longest economic expansion in history. Millennials are at 20-year highs, The which is my thing personally, is the no homes to buy. Housing hits cycle highs in demand both in 2017 and 2020 when inventory was at cycle lows. The no homes to buy marketing theory to me is – Whenever there's a missed sales report, they go, hey, what are you supposed to do? There's no homes to buy. Then they don't tell you, hey, wait a second. Oh, yeah, there were apparently there were homes to buy when demand gets better. Because the one issue I think for me that I'm worried about in housing is in 2020 to 2024, home prices can accelerate if rates stay low. Uh, and, and the last uh, NAR report, we're going to get a new one tomorrow, 8% median nominal home price growth is not good. It's not healthy. I thought the best thing that I saw last year for housing is real home prices. Uh, went negative year over year. That is a healthy level to be in. And I know the industry likes to tout home prices, greatest investment, all that stuff. But you don't want home prices to accelerate uh, uh, too high because wh- what you do is you're limited by the mortgage rates. And this is why four and a half to five percent mortgage rates impacts the markets. So let's go in a little bit deeper there. So the, the industry loves to talk about rapid home price appreciation. As a homeowner, the real estate investor, I, I like to see the value of my my home increase um, year over year. But what is that? What is that equilibrium point? Like, where can the industry still have that talking point that homeownership is a is a great investment, but not price out a majority of this this wave, this demographic opportunity we have that brings health to the housing economy. So real home prices staying negative, which is the equivalent to rent, that's where we want to root for. That means nominal home prices are really running at 35 to 4.5%. Uh, that, that's kind of where you want to be. But if you have above 4.5%, 4.6% nominal home price growth with wage growth running at 3 3%, basically what you're doing is you're facilitating an industry that needs lower rates. And that's what we've seen since 1981. Every single housing cycle has that 2% plus lower rates to help it, you know, to help grow, to grow sales. For that to happen in the next cycle, we need one and a quarter to two and a quarter 30 year fixed rates, uh, with duration. Now, I'm a, I'm a big person about, you know, it's going under 3%, you know, even possibly having a one handle for a little bit, but you're running out of room. So you do not want to tout, uh, um, uh, above, let's make it even easier. You don't want to tout any price growth above 5%. You want to, you want home prices to stay between two to four percent, hopefully for, for for a very long time. But what I saw uh, earlier in this year, that was not the case, and that was my big fear about years 2020 to 2024. Is that how people staying in their homes longer, uh, people don't need to move as much, lower mortgage rates will facilitate home price growth in a demographic fashion. We saw that. Now it's not the case anymore because of the virus, but. You don't want that kind of home price growth because over the long run, it becomes problematic. So we're, we're going to get pretty like academic here and uh, uh, economics land. But we've seen the, the Fed be, be pretty active in month one of, of this pandemic crisis that, that we are in. What are the, the act, activities or actions that could influence uh, real or nominal home price growth 
coming out of D.C. or the or the Federal Reserve? Or is there anything that can be done at a national level to prevent home price, that real appreciation at 8% that would require a, a, a one or a low two handle on the on a mortgage, 30-year mortgage interest rate? This is the most difficult problem in housing. Uh, builders do not build for the existing home sales market. So people are waiting for this big building boom. Unless you get the government to federally deficit finance a housing boom, it's just not going to happen. That If you wanted to know something about D.C., is that if there's any kind of policies to cool down home price growth, the, the federal government has to step in and provide the money for building. Because the builders won't do it. The builders have, the builders only build off their own demand curve. This notion that they were going to build a lot of homes because in theory, a lot of people thought it was never happened, right? We spent 10 years talking about it. It never happened. When new home sales grow, uh, housing starts growing. Um, that would be the most pro housing, uh, uh, item the, the, the federal government can do or the federal reserve if they wanted to get involved in that is to provide funding for housing construction. Mortgage rates are going to stay low maybe for a very, very long time, uh, maybe in our lifetimes, just because inflation is low, the rate of growth is low. This notion that mortgage rates have to go higher, uh, federal debt is a problem, inflation is going to – all these are marketing gimmicks that have been used for four decades. None of it is true. It's never happened. The 10-year yield is at 0.62% right now. We're at $25 trillion in debt. We're going to go to $71 trillion in debt. Uh, we don't have the ability to grow the economy fast or have inflation. So mortgage rates are going to stay low. But if you wanted to make sure that housing price inflation doesn't get out of hand, the federal government has to kick in money to help the states and cities build homes. Because the states and cities do not have the money. The builders aren't going to do it. So it has to come from Washington. So on the subject of states and cities, is your view on the the health and future of the housing market uh, equally distributed across geographies? Or do you have any specific viewpoints on areas of the country that are are more at risk now or maybe more at risk in, in coming months or years as we navigate this uh, pandemic recession? Well, it, it, like always, it's the United States of America, then there's California. <laughs> California is just, it's just not, I mean. I'll remind everybody, you're coming in today from, from Irvine. So you Yeah, are, so the, the median sales price here in Irvine in my zip code is 1.2 million. So there's only a certain amount of people uh, that can buy homes near water. Everywhere else is somewhat, you know, Seattle has that problem. New York has that problem. Everywhere else should be fine. But California near the water is just a different beast altogether. So there's limits. So, you know, I remember in, in 2014, uh, the BNY Mellon Stock Conference we had here in, in California, I, I was talking live on Bloomberg. I said 82% of the working population in California are priced out of housing once you take away cash buyers and those who make three times median income, which right now would be like, you know, 190 to 210,000. So there are states that a lot of people are just renters and we don't build enough affordable rents for people. There's the problematic area. The Midwest, the South, uh, even in Texas, you know, it, it's not as expensive, but these hot coastal areas are just, you know, the types of jobs and incomes you need just to be able to own a homes. They're there. That's the only reason why, you know, prices are still rising, but it becomes problematic over time. And you can see that that even four and a half to five percent mortgage rates can create weakness in these in these coastal areas. But everywhere else should be okay. All right. Here's a brief word from our sponsor. 
During these challenging times, Quicken Loans Mortgage Services is committed to the health and well-being of its partners, its partners' clients, and its communities. Even though things are changing rapidly, you can count on the QLMS commitment to speed, certainty, and care. QLMS is now approving new partners within 24 hours. That means you can be up and running quickly and be able to help your clients. Visit QLMortgageServices.com to get started. Now, more than ever, QLMS is stronger together. Housing were All right, Logan, so we went into a lot of the details, but if you had to summarize this article on why housing isn't as doomed as it may seem, but here's why, what, what is the cliff notes? What are the two bullets that matter the most that our listeners need to take away from this conversation of why we are not doomed? You, 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 the, be, the best thing I tell people is go to the, go to the census population uh, uh, data. Look at ages 26 to 32 right now. It is the biggest in U.S. history. That is your demographic power boom right there. And then look where mortgage rates are at. They're low. If mortgage rates were high and inflation was high, problematic for housing. Okay. If the demographics for housing were low, if we didn't have this young uh, uh, demographic patch right here, problematic for housing. But it's not. The two most important things are there. This virus was the only thing that shut the economy down. We were heading toward the 11th year of the expansion, uh, most likely going to our 12th year. So once you get rid of this, because it's a health crisis right now, you go back to the most powerful demographic patch ever recorded in U.S. history. That's, that's the power, and mortgage rates should be low uh, uh, for this demographic patch to get. What I always look at, look at total home sales, existing and new home sales, about $6 million. That's where you should strive for. We were headed to 6.4 million plus. That was, that was much hotter than I thought. But that's where you want to go to, and you have the people, right? You have the people to get you there, and that's the most important part of the demographic patch right now in that inflation and rates are still low. Well, there you go, folks. If you want to sound smart at a cocktail hour, you just have to remember three words about real estate, demographics and interest rates. There you go. It's all, it's all you have to remember to at least sound somewhat educated about what's going on in the housing market right now. So, so Logan, this week and the last few days over the weekend, you've been teasing out um, some ideas, some charts, some, some insights on Twitter, and you've been working with our team on a new article that you'll be publishing this week all around the, the theme and thesis of your foreclosure thesis. So can you, can you tease out that concept for us? What, do you, what are you working on right now, and what is the foreclosure thesis? Well, this foreclosure uh, uh, that will happen, it will happen, uh, it cannot be avoided, is going to be so much different than the previous cycle, but you have to explain why. And I think, I think the foreclosure article that I'm going to write is going to give you all the variables uh, to show what should we expect going out, but also to show you what kind of loan profiles uh, are the highest risk for foreclosures. And I think that's the big difference in this record-breaking expansion that we did have compared to the previous cycle. So there's once I uh, show the different variables, I think people will understand why the foreclosure crisis in 2021 is going to look so much different than what we saw from 2006 to 2011, because the loan profiles in this cycle are very, very good. And the, the nested equity and all the different variables are going to be put together in that article to showcase which group most likely are going to be past the forbearance and going into foreclosure and which groups aren't going to have that problem and which groups might just decide just to sell their homes and be completely clear of a short sale or foreclosure. So we want to put all the variables. Remember, everything needs to have an economic model. 
everything needs to have a pro and con case. You have to put all the variables in there. You don't want to listen to articles that address the ending fact first and then not give you a pathway to walk in. You know, always be the detective. Don't be the troll. That's kind of my thing. So I, my job is to basically show you the, the, the pro and, and the con case of this foreclosure crisis or situation that will happen most likely in 2021. So we we saw that in the Great Recession that that close to 10 million there were t- close to 10 million housing foreclosures of, of different of different com- complexions and um, so, some being straight up foreclosure, others being short sales. Uh, are, are you in, are you modeling out uh, a scenario that looks to anything remotely close to that? Um, or, and, and what are you kind of what are you looking at as you're thinking about this thesis? One one of the things is that home prices really accelerated in 2002 to 2005, but the credit bubble accelerated. So what you had is that you had you had everyone in the broad base in a credit bubble that 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 was overheating from 2002 to 2005. Uh, existing home sales, the peak was 7.26 million back then. New home sales were over a million. What do we have here is completely different. We have what I call as late cycle lending. Late cycle lending is the people that actually have the lowest down play, payment and the lowest FICO score. That is the group that will be in, in the stress category. This, this last economic expansion had very high FICO scores and no exotic debt structures. So it's the opposite worlds. So you cannot even have come remotely close to the foreclosure uh, crisis of the past because it was a very short amount of time with overheating credit bubbles to a very long duration. So we had a lot more homes being bought uh, in, in a longer time, and the credit quality is better. So you need to break out who's going to be at risk and who isn't. Uh, and then you go into the forbearance factor about what's the timeline and what's the loan profiles to look at. So it, it's a completely different story, and it has to be explained that way so people can understand what to look for in 2021. I'm, I'm 100% with you that the the underwriting and, and late 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 ugh, excuse me late cycle lending profile is entirely different than what we saw in, leading up to 2006. But what we didn't see then was this rapid and immediate uh, fall off in employment. And uh, that, that's what scares me most about this cycle. It doesn't matter what the, the FICO was. It doesn't matter what the underwriting standards were last month or, or last year. If that, if, each, um, if that person or that couple does not have a job today, how do they survive through the, this period without, um, without being at risk of foreclosure? And the, the forbearance programs may kind of play into that. But I'm interested in your perspective there on how this rapid job loss scenario can impact this foreclosure thesis. In any circumstances, 22 million plus jobs being lost is a devastating housing story. When you look at the jobs that have been lost, okay, it's a lot of what we call rental profiles. Homeowners have a little bit more uh, uh, leverage or, or, or levers to pull uh, uh, compared to a renter. I think the deflationary story right now is in renting. If this lockdown continues longer and longer, and you get more and more permanent economic damage with certain industries. You know, for example, the oil shale industry, that is one sector that is that, you know, it might be a very long time for them to get back on uh, on par. When the lockdowns are over, a lot of these jobs, not all of them, but a lot of these jobs are going to come back. And I still think that's a renter story. The housing, the home profiles of homeowners or home buyers are much different than what I would say a traditional those who are looking for rent. So, as terrible as those jobs are, once this health crisis is over, look for actual stimulus for the U.S. economy. 
what we're doing right now, the 8.3 trillion is disaster relief. It's not a stimulus. It's just basically trying to keep as uh, many people's whole. You see that, you know, people that make under 46,000 with the extended unemployment benefits and that $1,200 check that might happen again and again, the incomes are there, but you do not have a housing market when you're in lockdown. So it's going to look a lot different once lockdown protocols are off. And I think that's when we need to make our real macroeconomic theories about the housing market then, because we just came off of the best data just two months ago. And now the data is just, we can't make a really clear conscious what's going to happen. So I think we have to wait after to see how the job loss recession impacts the housing market in terms of homeowners and home buyers versus the renting market, which I think is, is, is the most significant brunt of the damage in the real estate interest industry right now is, is those who are renters are looking to rent. That's the problematic things I see at this stage. But every month that goes by, it becomes more problematic for homeowners and home buyers. So, and you mentioned the, the additional levers that homeowners can pull. It, one of those levers is the, the value in their home. If we do, if we do maintain a, a healthy valuations in the U.S. market and don't see home prices fall off, that, that lever of being able to sell your house with some equity in it is a pretty differentiating factor from what we saw in 2008, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yes, and, and this is why I talk about the home buyers of 2010 to 2017. And the reason I use that is that because the housing tenure is that 10 years plus, a lot of those homeowners are still in their house. Uh, the cash out boom never happened. They have a lot of nested equity. So not only can they, if, if they, if let's say one or two people were working, they both lost their jobs. Not only can they just sell their homes to, to, to prevent a foreclosure, they also have home equity lines. They have, they have, typically homeowners have different levers to pull. They have higher saving rates. They have their 401ks. It's just a different type of financial profile. They can weather a storm where a renter can't. And that's, I think that's one of the things that, you know, 2018, 19, and 2020 home buyers are different, especially with low down payments. They have no nested equity, really. They don't really have a home equity lines they could use. So those low down payment homes are, are at risk. But 2010 to 2017, boy, that profile looks clean. It looks good. You have nested equity out there. And a lot of these people don't need to move. So they've stayed there for a very long time. That's different than what we saw from 2002 to 2005, where we saw a credit boom, cash out boom, home equity line boom, uh, low down payments uh, up all over the place, and then home prices collapse. So you have negative equity, 10, 20, 30, 40% of negative, negative equity out there. Different marketplace to deal with. Now, Logan, I, I, we don't want to give away everything. This is an article and some research that we, we actually haven't published yet. But uh, so for our listeners that come in later this week, uh, do you know the title of this article? How can they how can we find it? Uh, hopefully it'll be the 2021 foreclosure crisis. And uh, that'll just be going into specific details and having charts to talk about uh, uh, every single variable to look at for them. Because right now there's a lot of fear talks about housing's a bubble. It's going to crash. Home prices, everyone's, you know, not, not the case this time around. Not this case. It's a completely different thing. And, and, and my, my point is that these people have been wrong for a very long time. They've been talking about home prices crashing, demand crashing for seven years now. They didn't happen. There's a reason for that. They don't believe in demographics, right? They don't, they're not, they don't have a financial lending background, so they don't understand loan quality. Most of them couldn't tell you what the GSC basic FHA guidelines are even. So you can see their flaws. So my job is just to basically showcase the risk and the people that aren't in risk and then everyone else can make their minds off of the data that it provides. 
That's excellent. Excellent. We'll make sure we link to it in the show notes so everyone can get that article as well as the housing isn't as doomed as it may seem article that we started the conversation with. One, and, one, and also the five things, uh, the one I wrote two weeks ago, the five, love, things, yeah. yes, yeah, the five things to follow because uh, for me personally, doing all this, there's a BC before coronavirus, there's the AD, ADs after the disease, and then there's the AB factor, America's back. Uh, uh, you have to separate because it's a, it's a really strange time. The U.S. was still in an expansionary mode. Then you saw these waterfall uh, charts negative, just the worst, worst month-to-month charts you're ever going to see in your life. But there are things. There's five things I put in that article that need to happen before we go to the American backstage. And this time around, don't fall prey to the people that say, no, there's no recovery. There's no nothing. There's certain data lines on a historical basis you track. They've tracked every single expansion. Uh, you just go with the data there rather than listen to the people that missed out on the longest economic and job expansion ever reported in history. We'll get that in there, too. So uh, we know you also just recorded a podcast, uh, the Animal Spirits podcast, which uh, is, is one of my favorites. I'm a former Wall Street guy, investment banker. I've been listening to, to Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson for, for years now. So I'm excited that you recorded a show with them. Um, and we have a diverse audience here at Housing Wire as well. So I'd love to, can you give us some of the, the clip notes and the points that you talked about with, with Michael and Ben, kind of for, for what that, that Wall Street audience is, is interested in when it comes to, to our little world of the housing market that we live in every day. That's, uh, that's attracting a well, lot. It, it's right. interesting because I, I talked to Michael and Ben just a few, few minutes ago, but then I also talked to Real, Real Vision last week. Real Vision is, you know, Recession Watch, and that's a Wall Street uh, uh, media company too. And both of those are kind of the same in the sense that I'm trying to portray a realistic outlook to the housing market and what's going on. And a lot of this is based on don't look at lockdown protocol data, wait until lockdown protocols, then make your housing assertion. Uh, the loan profiles are really good in this cycle. It's much different. Uh, the demographics are, 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 are good, which Real Vision I don't think wanted to hear. And uh, but we're, we're not in the same similar situation because we never had a really booming, overheating housing market. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and lending in this country, and I, and I say this, and I say this with, with all honesty for, 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 for a few, for a month now, we are, should be so grateful that Freddie and Fannie are not uh, out of government uh, governmentship right now. If Freddie and Fannie were publicly traded companies that did not have any kind of government uh, relationship, the housing market would be much worse today. The fact that Freddie and Fannie are there and the back by the government, the government can take those losses, allows lending to still happen to a degree. We obviously have tightened le- uh, lending standards. There's obviously uh, uh, some lenders that are out of business right now. But the function of the U.S. housing market is much better this time around because Freddie and Fannie are part of the government. The government has the ability to take losses, to manage these situations, and it's a, it's a real positive that we didn't get those uh, two uh, giants out of the government uh, ship right here. And, we're, and this is the thing going out in the future is what to look for because the housing market is still there. The base is still there. The demand base, those people ages 26 to 32 did not die of the virus, they're still there. We just got to get the economy going again, moving again, having people do open houses, those things. Wait until that happens before you take the doom and gloom story. These people have been wrong for decades. They've been wrong about America since 1790. Economic cycles have models. There's things to track. Uh, and one of the things that our uh, the industry has been really upfront with is trying to raise awareness of the impact of 
forbearance on non-bank servicers and non-bank lenders. Um, is that something that uh, that Michael? That's, that's, and, that's one. That's one thing I talked with Michael a bit. Yeah, and I just you know the forbearance. You know, the, uh, the lending the lending facility issues are not generally known to the public. So uh, in March 9th, I talked about it. Boy, the, mor- the mortgage market is a meltdown. I don't think people understood what I was trying to say. You have EPO risk, you have margin call risk, you have forbearance risk. Uh, if you're going to do a uh, forbearance, uh, if the government's going to say, hey, everyone, you can take forbearance, you better provide a facility department to help the servicers because you can't just say, hey, everyone, go at it. Don't, don't worry about it. Nobody needs to prove anything. Uh, I'm pretty sure Mark Calabrio and, and the United States government will do something most likely this week. Uh, because numbers are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, you can't just say to the industry, by the way, uh, everyone, you can take forbearance and we're not going to provide any help for you uh, at all. That's that's not how it should work. You could give as much forbearance as you believe, but provide some facility out there for the system to still be intact. That, that, that's one thing I did go with um, Animal Spirits. And that's one thing I think uh, even as close as this week, we might see from the U.S. government to provide some of uh, assistance. We know we've seen a lot of industry leaders really vocal this week. David Stevens has been out there and in front of a a lot of media outlets and publishing online, Housing Wire included. Um, Chris Whalen's had some really interesting perspectives. Um, It's really interesting uh, illustrations of those perspectives with lots of flames. (laughs) And, uh, and, but, but I'm interested from your perspective, Logan, are there any indicators or, or, or anything you're listening to or hearing right now that gives you confidence that we may see some movement this week? We're already above what Mark Calabrio t- t- uh, modeled out, okay? So, uh, you know, when you're in a pandemic virus, you want to overshoot on the good side. You don't want to say, you know what, I'm just going to just wait and see. No, you want to get ahead of the curve. Look what the Federal Reserve has done. The Federal Reserve has gone full bazooka, nuclear attack, everything. You want to make sure that your model doesn't go, well, guess what? We already broke through there. I think they estimated a million by May. We're already, we're already past that. GSEs. Uh, administration needs to get victories, and I'm pretty sure that the administration is wondering what's going on here. You don't want this to continue, uh, and I, I, I'm hopeful that this week uh, the FHFA, the Treasury, the government just basically provides some kind of facility because we're already past the stage of, you know, well, we believe this will be the worst case. We've already gone past the worst case already, and it's only been a few weeks. So uh, global pandemics. Different story. There's no moral hazard here. Okay, this is a virus that's trying to kill us. Okay, this is World War III. This is our World War III. Treat this you know, as a war. So provide the facilities to facilitate everyone so it'll be more beneficial for every side of the equation. Uh, and that's why hopefully this week that's something will be done because if this goes on longer and longer and on a, we get 30 million, remember, 46% of all jobs are at risk. Uh, in a very short time. That's a lot of people. So the forbearance can get bigger and bigger. You want to get ahead of that uh, uh, out there. So you don't want to be behind the curve. And, and, and if it's not this week, I, I boy, I'd, I'd be very hard pressed to see what does it, what will it take for them to provide a facilities uh, center for the servicers to have something to work with. Logan, thank you so much for sharing your, your time and expertise. We are we're going to get your articles out there in front of everybody. We, we love the, the research analysis and perspective. Um, so thank you for the value you bring to Housing Wire and our readers. My pleasure. Great to be here. Ladies and gents, uh, Logan Motoshami, thank you so much. Have a good one. 
All right, we can cut there. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out HousingWire's latest podcast, The Daily Download, which is a daily wrap of HousingWire's hottest stories, now available on Spotify, Google Podcast, and more.